So, this morning, we are starting a new sermon series in the Gospel of Luke that we are calling The Goodness of God in the Kindness of Christ. Kindness is, in some way, in many ways, is kind of a lost art and a, a lost value in our culture, and that includes often within the church. And so, we really wanted to return to the, the focus and the first importance of well, Jesus. And so we'll be looking at his interactions with all kinds of different people in his life and ministry in and through the Gospel of Luke. And so this morning we're going to be talking about um, his disturbing kindness from Luke chapter 14. And so I'm going to start and read and pray and ask God to, to guide us as we do this this morning. So starting in verse 16 of Luke chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth referring to Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And in case you're wondering, yes, in the Greek, that does say mic drop. Thank you for the polite laugh. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, that we ha- what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows, widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are often consumed with the things of this world, the the definitions of this world, the ways of this world, the the goals and the hopes and the dreams of this world, and it it is not that all of those things are bad, but that they are less. They are less than you. So Lord, stir up our affections, ignite our appetites, help us to see how so much more satisfying your grace is in and through your kindness toward us. We pray these things, Lord, in your name. Amen. So by a show of hands, I'm curious, just how many of you, like me, uh, discovered how absolutely disturbing and terrible the lyrics are to the Christmas song, Baby, It's Cold Outside? Okay, yeah, like everybody knows now, but it's like, I remember when that was like, everybody realized it kind of all at once and, you know, in a time when the only thing we all are aware of together is often the Super Bowl and even that is less than usual. Like, everybody knew that that was a terrible thing. Um, 
There's a similar uh, moment in time uh, if you had kids, if you have kids, uh, where you realize how utterly disturbing the lyrics are to the nursery rhyme, Rockabye Baby. Um, if, you are, if you don't remember them, I'm not going to sing it, because as we already discussed, that's not good news. The, the rhyme goes like this, Rockabye Baby on the treetops, yeah, because that's safe. I mean, there's helicopter parenting, and then there's like putting your baby in a precarious place at the place where helicopters fly. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. Duh. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall, and down will come baby, cradle, and all. We hum this tune to get our kids to calm down and go to sleep. I'm like, I, I got a little bit of anxiety in my heart just like rereading this. We just, how in the world is, does, is this still a thing? How in the world do we hum this tune? How has it become such, such a part of our social and cultural fabric, and yet we don't even really hear what's being said in it? Jesus says something very disturbing in this passage, albeit for very different reasons, <laughs> but it similarly falls on deaf ears. Right? The context of this is, is just before the passage we read, uh, there's a couple verses that explain that this is a celebrity homecoming, that Jesus has, has gained a reputation for being a powerful speaker, for, for teaching God's word in ways that change people's lives, and there are rumors of miracles happening, and all the eyes of the synagogue, it says, were on him. In other words, everybody's like on the edge of their, their seat. They're just, they're just waiting for this, this son of Joseph to, ah, to just explode in, in their midst. So he reads the scroll, he sits down, and then gives the shortest sermon in the history of sermons. He says, he whom Isaiah proclaimed has arrived. I've arrived. I'm here. So how do they respond? How do they respond? Well, it, it's it kind of lost in here, but I, I, I want to tell you that it's, it's pretty much the equivalent uh, in, you know, ancient Greek of great sermon, pastor. Ah, so inspiring. That really fed me. I feel nourished. I feel encouraged. I feel filled up this week. Amen. Are you serious? Like, let's put this in context. Israel, God's people, had been waiting for hundreds of years for God to fulfill His promise to liberate the oppressed, to recover the sight for the blind, to proclaim good news to the poor. And you're like, thanks for filling me up this morning, Pastor. Like, that's, that's it? But Jesus sees hearts, and He knows that they are missing the point. So if we are going to understand why they missed the point, why we might miss his point, we first need to understand what the point he was making, which is the kind of Christ's kindness. Let me reread verses 18 through 19 again. This is, the, this is the part he's quoting from the Isaiah scroll. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you are like us, a 21st century modern American, you know, saturated in the definitions of everything that is going on in the world, you're going to read this primarily as 
like an economic or material way of framing things, right? I.e., this is about social justice, okay? And that is accurate, but I want to challenge you that our definitions and our categories of what social justice is is not shared by this context, by their culture, or by God's Word. It is inclusive of many aspects of how we define it, but it is also very different and bigger. Because this is a Middle Eastern lens and definition, not a Western individualist framework. Let me give you a couple examples. When Jesus is quoting Isaiah and it says that uh, he is, is proclaiming good news to the poor, that word poor is the same word that's used in the Beatitudes in the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus is teaching, and he's saying that blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That poor in spirit language is, means diminished status or honor. It means those who functionally have been lost or are far from home, who lack a spiritual family like we were just talking about. That could be a widow or a tax collector for very different reasons. The widow's going to be economically poor and struggle with that and very dependent on the family system that they're in. But the tax collector is going to be ostracized because they're seen as a betrayal, uh, a betrayer or um, a profiteering grifter of their own people. Both will struggle with feeling fully included and be poor in spirit for different reasons and at different economic levels. So it includes that, but it's not only that. The word liberate, to, to proclaim, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Um, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. That word, more literally translated, is the same word we translate in Scripture as release. And it means a release from the bondage of sin and its effects from the brokenness and fallenness of this world. It does not imply and, or as, have as a conclusion or as, as, as its intent that we are then you know, liberated to live my life, free of constraint and expectations. Quite the contrary. We are liberated, liberated into and freed into, restored unto God's family. To be whatever the opposite of poor in spirit is, it has, has to include being nourished and content and at home among God's people. Finally, as almost a summary statement, when he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, this is a reference to the Old Testament holiday and celebration that happens every seven years called Jubilee. When all debts are canceled, doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> all debts are canceled, all indentured servants are set free, and, there's, and, and all fields are allowed to lie fallow and recover from the work. It's a year of rest. It's a year of Sabbath. That's why we do this every seven days. There's a Jubilee Sabbath for a year every seven years. In short, the good news that Jesus is fulfilling and that Isaiah proclaimed here is that he has come to make all things new. And that sounds like good news, right? Then why in the world... Why in the world did the crowd at the synagogue react the way it did? It's because like, that, like us, we have this compromised heart. We have a limit to our kindness. They went from wonderful sermon pastor to, I'm going to cut you in a heartbeat. They, had, they were furious. And because of our kind of historical cultural distance, 
they're going to have a different misunderstanding than we do. Our misunderstanding of, of, of 18 and 19 is going to be very much kind of around its content, like, oh, what does it mean by liberate and, and who are the poor? But the crowd understood that part. What they misunderstood actually is its scope. Take a look at verses 23 and 24. He says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Now, it, it culturally doesn't really translate, but what this proverb or this maxim is communicating is, is the assumed preferential treatment or favor to one's own family or community. It is a loyalty, it, it expresses a loyalty to tribe. And that's what verse 24 really kind of affirms. Um, when he, or sorry, yeah, verse 23, when he says, what, you, what we have heard you did at Capernaum. In other words, all the miracles you were performing do here in your hometown as well. They were expecting preferential treatment. They were expecting to be prioritized. They were expecting for Jesus to advance their interests. And Jesus says, nope. You don't understand. I'm here to make all things new. Yes, that is something you are interested in, but it is not only your interests that are included in that scope. And it is definitely not on your terms. You see, Jesus knows that like them, we say we want Jesus to make all things new, but not really. Conceptually, we do. It's not like we're trying to deceive ourselves or other people. We just, when the rubber hits the road, we're not as thrilled about it. We like being favored. We love to hear about the kindness of Christ, but not if that kindness includes those we deem as less deserving. I was trying to think of a, you know, what example in Scripture is, uh, of, of God's kindness is most disturbing. And there's a lot to choose from. God is kind beyond any rational uh, reason that you or I might otherwise naturally have. But I came to and realized and, and have, was wrecked by when Jesus was hanging from the cross and the crowds are jeering at him and the Pharisees are, are taunting him, that he prays. He doesn't indulge outrage. He doesn't say, you're going to get yours. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That even as he is being crucified and is literally being executed, as he's dying, he says, I know that they do this because they think that this is what they want. And I want they want what they want, but this is not it. They're missing it. Their hardness of heart has, has blinded them. And this very act of giving myself up for them is the thawing of their hearts, the kindness and the gentleness that will thaw their hearts. Because Jesus' kindness is disturbing because it includes both the transgressed, the transgressee, and the transgressor. Now, let's be honest. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to out yourself, but just be honest with yourself. Maybe some of you when I mentioned social justice or you heard this passage and you knew where I was going with this, you started getting a little excited. Maybe you even said an amen to yourself or, I know this is crazy, we're in the Presbyterian church, maybe you even said it out loud. 
I just want to ask, did you have someone you vehemently disagreed with in your mind at the time? Was that amen in, 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 in tension with those you disagree with? Or was it for their sake? In other words, which do you want more? Which do you say to Jesus you want more? In saying amen, do you want their liberation or your vindication? The difference between those two is the difference between the kindness of Christ and the conditional kindness of the world. I say this not because you're a terrible, horrible person, though you are. So am I, right? I th- we all are like, yes, Jesus agrees with me. No, but hopefully I agree with him. Not if, but when the kindness of Christ disturbs you, don't reject or reduce his kindness to something more manageable out of hand. Let it be a sonar that pings off of the barrier to your heart so that it can reveal the source and the shape of that barrier and then allow that kindness to thaw it. And so Jesus, even though he is you know, the crowd is outraged and he is, is driven to the cliffs. Even though all that's happening, Jesus is laying, is sowing seeds even then to try and reach the people he knows are, are going to reject him if they fully understood what he's saying. And he tells us two stories to help us see the barriers that we need disturbed. This is my favorite part. Like this is, oh, this is so interesting, okay? So there's a lot going on in this passage that Jesus references but doesn't explain because his audience would have, would have gotten all that because they're very familiar with the story. But for our purposes, the first story includes, is, is about this interaction between a prophet named Elijah and a widow named Zarephath. And as it said, there was a famine and this widow and her son who, it, because she seems to be the, the, the breadwinner, it's assumed in, or implied that the son is not an adult, he needs the care of his mother, and he's not able to help care for her, so he is a dependent. But this widow and son are starving. And Elijah goes to them and asks them for bread. <laughs> he's like, can you give me some water and some bread? I'm thirsty and I'm hungry. Zarephath responds and says, uh, can you see, I'm, I'm actually collecting sticks out here, and these sticks I'm going to use to make a fire so that we can cook the last of our flour and oil to eat, and then my son and I, we're just going to die. <laughs> and it's, it's hard to tell, we don't know if, like, is she, like, cynical and apathetic about that reality, or is she despairing? Um, and we don't know. But what she's saying is, like, no, no, this is can you withdraw your request for hospitality because I don't have enough to go around. I don't even have enough for us. And Elijah says, I get it, I know. Just trust. (laughs) If you bring, if you cook this bread and you bring it to me, you will find that there will be enough flour and oil in your jars to last you through the end of this famine. And she does, and it did. The second story is an interaction between um, kind of Elijah's protege named Elisha and a man named Naaman. Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army. 
And just chronologically, historically speaking, yes, Syria and Israel were at war. <laughs> um, Israel had, had captives who were enslaved and served in the palaces of the Syrian king. They were a literal enemy. Naaman was desperate to cure leprosy, which we don't know if it was actually leprosy or if this was just some kind of other uncurable um, skin disease. We don't know, and it, it's, it's irrelevant in the, in the specifics there. But he hears from one of these captured slaves, a little girl, who tells him, and he, she's a servant, she's a slave, she says, you know, it's too bad you don't know Elisha, and you're not in Israel, because Elisha is, the prof, is a prophet of the one true God, and, and he can heal you. And so Naaman is desperate enough that he goes to the king of Syria, and the king of Syria sends money and expensive gifts and a letter to the king of Israel saying, hey, please allow my servant Naaman to see this prophet Elijah so that he might be healed. And the king of Israel, kind of understandably, let's, let's be fair, he panics. He's like, this is a trap. You can use the gift from Star Wars and everything if you want. Um, but Elisha responds and says, ah, hold on, God's up to something here, tell him to come to my house. And so he does. Naaman arrives with an entourage and all of his servants, because he's a really big deal. Um, and Elisha <laughs> does not roll out the red carpet. He actually just sends somebody else to tell him, like a messenger, and to tell him, hey, just wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and you're good. Naaman is furious. He's livid because he has traveled all this way. He's like, you want me to take a bath? I did that already. Even He probably thought it was some kind of a ritual cleansing. He's like, I've done that in other rivers. Why, what's so special about the Jordan? This is ridiculous. You're not helping me. I believe in science. I might regret that. That was improvised off the cuff. Man, I'm really going to get an email or a question. That's why we have the Q&A number. Um, the answer to that is, I don't know, whatever it is. Anyway, but what's fascinating is, is in the language of, um, of the narrative that Jesus is referencing, Naaman's servants say to him, basically, you know, if Elisha asked you to do something amazing and extraordinary, glorious even, you'd listen to him. But he asked you to do something ordinary that's beneath you. <laughs> Naaman, it gets through to him. He does, he listens, and he is transformed. He comes back to Elijah, or Elisha and, and says, Let, what do you want? I will give you any gift. I will give you payment. I will give you money. And Elisha says, no, you don't understand. And he's actually talking to him, not through a messenger this time, which is kind of him. It's very hospitable. Um, he says, you don't understand. I can't receive payment for this because this is the one true God who did this. This is Yahweh. He extended kindness to you, the general of the armies who are the enemies of his people. And so Naaman just says, okay, then please allow me to take two loads of dirt on my mule's home so that I can make a mud brick altar from this soil so that I can worship Yahweh. And when I go, please tell your God that when I go with my king to the temple to worship the Syrian God, that when I bow my head, it is to Yahweh. And he says, go in peace. 
So why in the world is Jesus bringing up these two stories? And why in the world did the synagogue uh, react so uh, chaotically to it? They had something in common between the two of them. They resisted the temptation to reject the messenger because the message was too disturbing, because the kindness was too disturbing. In other words, it, the good news was too good to be true because it, it pushed back on and required the deconstruction of false assumptions and expectations of God and boxes that he refused to fit into. And something about the way God responded and the way that they trusted teaches us something about the nature of that kindness and the nature of the barriers that we need disturbed. And they disturbed two major barriers that we can absolutely identify with. God's kindness disturbed the widow's scarcity mentality. God's kindness disturbed the widow's scarcity mentality. How many of us have been like, I got nothing left? Whether we're talking about money or our energy or our time, and we just, we want to circle the wagons. And I'm not talking about biblical rest. I'm not talking about taking the Sabbath seriously and resting and having joy and fun. What I'm talking about is, is loving our neighbor as ourself. And through that, despite a far more extreme than the vast majority of us have ever experienced, the widow trusted Elijah anyway, and God used that faith bridge to provide for them. One of the most powerful illustrations of this I've ever heard um, was when uh, Bryce and I were interviewing a friend of mine, Brandon Washington, for a podcast. And Brandon is a, um, a pastor, church planter in the northeast part of Denver, uh, Embassy Church. He's actually preached here at the table before. Great guy. And we were talking about justice, social justice. And we were talking about his experience as an African-American man and how the church has or has not responded well to that. And he said, I want to tell you a story that illustrates my experience. And he said, he lives in a neighborhood where there's an HOA, and the HOA pays for, uh, or at least paid for this one year, an arborist or a tree specialist to come through and trim the trees and you know, add fertilizer and do all this work. And he was watching out his window, and he realized that as one of the arborists was coming through his yard, he skipped a tree. And he was like, I pay an HOA. I'm going to get my money's worth out of this. This guy needs to come back and trim this tree. So he goes out to him, and he says, hey, you, you missed one. And the guy says, um, Actually, no, I didn't. Uh, our services don't include fruit trees because they require something different. He says, this is not a fruit tree. This, I've, I've been here for several years, and this has never had fruit on it of any kind. He said, no, it actually is a fruit tree. It's a domesticated pear tree. Come again? Apparently, pear trees are very nice to look at. They're healthy, they're... they're, they're uh, uh, they stay healthy, they're easy to care for and maintain, but the pears are super inconvenient because they drop to the ground when the tree bears fruit, and they rot, they stink, they smell, they make a mess of your lawn, they can kill the grass if you don't pick them up. It's really inconvenient. And so they bred the fruit-bearing part of the tree out of, out of the tree. Similarly, our scarcity mentality can domesticate the level of kindness we are willing to give our neighbor. And in so doing, we miss out on tasting and seeing 
the fruit of God's kindness in our lives too. So I encourage you, like, I wanted to stay away from application too much in this because what Jesus is trying to get us to, to get the synagogue to do and what Luke is trying to get us to do in this gospel is to see Jesus as he really is and just kind of let everything else go for a minute. But I would encourage you still to ask where God might be calling you to be hospitable or generous, but you've actually domesticated his kindness in your own heart such that you don't see the need or you're able to resist the call of kindness toward others. Similarly, God's kindness disturbed Naaman's pride. There's a fascinating wordplay in the original story. Um, I said it earlier, it was a little girl who uh, first told him of this opportunity to be healed. And his name, Naaman, means great man. And there's a parallel here, little and great, and girl and man. And so what's, what's being communicated here is this great man... Wisdom, healing, restoration, salvation comes by listening to a little girl and humbling yourself to hear her wisdom and follow through on it. And that's not just reading something into it because at the very end of that story, that narrative, when, when Naaman is restored and it says he's, he comes out of the Jordan and he's healed, it says that his skin is like a little girl's. It's bookending it and communicating that the reason why God saved him was because he chose him, of course, but he responded with humility. He did not allow or give in to the temptation of pride, rejecting it. I'd encourage you to ask yourself, what do you see is beneath you because it's ordinary? Or because maybe you've tried it already and it didn't work, which, by the way, that's, that's utilitarianism. That's not faith. Maybe it's prayer. I know I struggle with that. I mean, every, all of us, if you were a Christian, you know what it's like to, to say to God things in a room by yourself and wonder if he ever hear, heard you. But just because you don't feel his response or see it immediately does not mean he has not heard you or that he, has not, he is not there. This is the last thing I'll say before, we, if I, before I take some questions. But at the end of this, it says that Jesus escaped for now. For now. I say for now because the kindness of Christ is so big, so cosmic in scope that he went to the cross in his gentleness and his kindness, in his lowliness. He debased himself. He became poor in spirit in order to Restore the anemic imaginations of those of us who are poor in spirit. I actually, like it, it, it I just wonder, and I can't wait someday after Jesus, has come, after Jesus comes back to go and find the people who wanted to push him off of this cliff and ask them what it was like if they were at the cross when he was being crucified to, to hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Do you, think, do you think their hearts melted? Do you think they realized that Jesus intended that to be for them as well, despite it being a few years prior? Or did it take more time 
Did the lyrics of that good news just bounce off their heart and they took it for granted? And so in a a society that's saturated right now in self-righteous anger, when we are saturated in it, it's not just tempting because it's, it's, it's easy. It's actually celebrated as a virtue. This is profoundly disturbing kindness. It's even scandalous. So we started here for this sermon series because I want to encourage you to take, take God's kindness, allow that to disturb you and to bounce off like a sonar to the barriers that are keeping you from experience so that the rest of the sermon series, you can fully experience it on an even deeper level. Text to help you with that, actually. Um, I mentioned last week or a couple weeks ago, I can't remember, um, that uh, we're going to have a gift for you. So if you came this morning and if you're watching on the live stream, just come next week and they'll be here too. Um, the, we're giving away a, a book that you can get on the table to the left on your way out this morning that it's called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And um, I gather some donor wanted to buy these books for, for various churches. And so we wrote into the publisher and they sent us 100 books for free. And this sermon series while not tracking along exactly, it's not like a chapter-by-chapter thing, it was very much inspired by that book. And so if you want to saturate yourself in the kindness and the gentleness of Jesus so that you can see the goodness of God, please grab a copy of it on your way out the door this morning. So let me see. Wow, we do have some questions this morning. Wonderful. No, I'm actually excited. Okay. So, First question, is what you did in Capernaum referencing the next part, verse 31 through 37, or something else mentioned uh, elsewhere, slash the unspecified return of the power of the Spirit in verse 14? Let me read the rest of this real quick. Okay, so this is actually a very uh, simple answer. Um, When he references Capernaum, that is part of the region that is within Galilee. And so that was part of where... um, where he was before coming back to Nazareth. And so what's being said there is like something special seemed to have happened. That's the rumor of a miracle that happened in Capernaum. And so we're asking you to replicate that there. That's Jesus like kind of reading the hearts and minds of the, of the people around him. So um, I hope that clarifies. Um, next question. Jesus' teachings tend to challenge or break down social barriers. At the same time, healthy boundaries are also important in relationships. Are these ideas in conflict or are they somehow to go together? Yes. Thank you for asking yes or no question because now I don't, no, I'm kidding. Um, they go together. And that's part of the reason why I'm, I'm trying to avoid getting too specific in the application because what, what I'm after this morning, because this is what Jesus is after in this um, event, is a changed heart. A heart that doesn't just kind of, and I'm not trying to insinuate anything in your question, whoever this is, uh, that doesn't just go to boundaries and try to figure things out because that's actually coming from more of a Buddhist mindset that we, um, that we are, you know, have to have all things in balance and that if we just have enough boundaries, then we'll have a, a flourishing, satisfying life. I want to kind of push back on that and say, no, start with being all in on Jesus because in his kindness, he wants what is good for you and let him define what the boundary is. And so I just want to kind of be a little bit intentionally ambiguous there. Next question. What do you think the Bible teaches about safe boundaries within ministry relationships? Sometimes this seems to limit the amount of kindness given. Oof. This is a good question. What do you think the Bible teaches about safe boundaries within ministry relationships? 
Sometimes this seems to limit the amount of kindness given. Man, if this was you, I would love to talk to you afterwards because my, my questions and response are like, okay, what do you mean specifically by ministry relationships? This, this sounds to me like a question born out of like hurt and I want to be like sensitive and empathetic to that. And I will say that boundaries are important. <laughs> like we are not called to make anybody else Jesus except Jesus. And when that happens, it sets everybody up for failure and it's super problematic, unhealthy, and it, it is harmful. That said, there is a professionalism, like if this ministry relationship is talking about a, pa- a pastor, there's a professionalism that is not biblical and we're not called to because that's more of a corporate model than a biblical one. So I don't, yeah, I'm sorry if that's really unclear, but again, if you want to talk more about that, I would love to. One more question. Do you have any thoughts about why God's people do not seem to be more gentle and more kind than those who are not believing? Do you have any thoughts about why God's people do not seem to be more gentle and more kind than those who are not believing? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts. I would say that truth is good, it's beautiful, it's gracious, it's healing. It's also really dangerous. And if we, with our familiarity with the truth, it can be easy to forget that it is not our truth. It is the truth. And when we start to take responsibility for the truth that God reveals and think that it is a truth that we are patting ourselves on the back for because we're really smart and we're smart enough to believe it and we got it right, we started to miss grace. And so the truth, apart from grace, can be really dangerous. And that's why it is important and why if we're not praying as part of our liturgy on Sunday morning, we are confessing our need and our sin because we are just as culpable and susceptible to it as any other church or any other Christian. And so we have to lean in and depend on God for that. So that's a very good question. And also one that if you, have other que- if you want to follow up on that, I would love to talk more. The kindness of Christ and the goodness of God is not just this conceptual idea. It's not just, it is not an ideology and it is not a, a worldview that is diver- divorced from the person and work of who Jesus is. He demonstrates how true that is at the Lord's Supper, at the table. This is not the table's table, It is not a Presbyterian table. It is the Lord's table. The reason for that is because we need to know that when we are encouraged to to not allow our pride or our scarcity mentality to reject his kindness, that he moves toward us first. And so on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was with his friends. He took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this bread is my body. When you are wondering and confused by boundaries, remember that I broke down all boundaries, walls, and divisions that would keep me from you. And that it doesn't, you can screw that up, you can mess that up, and I will still love you, and I will still pursue you, and there's nothing that can prevent that. 
Likewise, he took the wine and he poured it out. He says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. That thing that you have been waiting for, for hundreds and thousands of years, I have arrived. And I shed my blood, not because I have an obligation, but because kindness is who I am. And that blood releases, liberates you from sin and death in any ultimate sense. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death. You proclaim and echo that which I fulfilled in Luke 4 when he came. That is good news. We do communion family style here, so at any point while Danny is leading us in worship, just come on up to this table or that one, and as soon as 10 or 12 of us are gathered around, we'll distribute the elements and take, the, take them together. We're actually looking at each other in the eye because we, are, we have been restored, we have been liberated into and unto family, this family. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for not for accepting us as we are, but loving us too much to allow us to stay here. Thank you for accepting us in every way and loving us deeply. I pray, Lord, that you, I have at the forefront of my mind the questions about what happens, what do we do about the dissonance of Christians behaving badly? And Lord, I, I just, I ask that you help us to see where that is true of us, that we may come to you for healing and for repentance, that it's not beneath us, and we do not need to see grace through a lens of scarcity, because it is big enough to handle any of that. Lord, we pray in your name, amen.